I'd like for you to turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 will be our text. But we won't quite finish 7. We're going to save that for next week. And we all know what next week is. It's Resurrection Sunday. And looking forward to rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we're going to tie a little bit of what we've been studying in, in creation and, and tie it into the cross, into the resurrection of Jesus. So look forward to seeing you next week too. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we are so thankful to have the wonderful privilege of coming to your throne of grace, that we might obtain your mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Today we lift up the Veda family and the uh, Azarsky family at the loss of Nick and Monica's nephew, John. Lord, we pray that you would be their strength today as they continue to carry the grief and the weight of, of the loss that took place yesterday. I know, Lord, that, uh, that for some it takes time, Lord, to, to deal with all that has happened and the way that it took place. But, Lord, we are so thankful, so grateful that you are a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of grace. And I know this family is so in need of that grace and mercy and comfort today. Father, strengthen them, Lord. Let it be a time where they will seek your face to know your will and direction now for their family and to be comforted in knowing that John will be with you and with you now. We are also thankful, Lord God, for the work that you're doing in Mary Jo's sister Suzanne. We pray, Father, that you would continue to do your healing Your work, Lord God, of completing the work that you began already in her. We're especially thankful, Lord God, that she is now turning to you and trusting in you. I pray, Father, that you will continue to show yourself strong on her behalf. Make yourself known to her each and every day of her life. We thank you so much for the privilege of coming to your word this morning. We ask for the anointing and the blessing of your Holy Spirit that we may come to a greater understanding of your word today. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, it's pretty evident that uh, anything evolutionary and has some significance to Darwinian scientists 
and happens to be trending presently. That's something I just learned not long ago about trending. There's trends that are going on on the internet, you know. So these things that happen to be trending presently. Well, all of this should should pique the uh, interest of of internet trends and, and those who follow them. Well, I happened upon an item as I'm doing my research and study and all, uh, and I happened upon this item that was trending on Yahoo the other day, and they have a list of things that are trending for the day, and and, uh, and for a certain reason it caught my attention. Uh, it uh, mentioned this phrase, homo floresiensis, and I saw my name in there, you know, my last name. And I said, well, that's quite interesting. I'd like to know what that's all about, you know. So I kept... Uh, you know, figuring, you know, looking at all the articles, and and then all of a sudden I came up uh, upon this particular picture, uh, and I said, uh, wherever it is, I said, well, no, that's not me, and uh, certainly doesn't look like any of my ancestors, but it does kind of look like a human skull, doesn't it? Uh, And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting, you know. So here's what uh, some of the articles uh, and the links to follow this trend were saying. Out of the Scientific American magazine, it had a title for an article, uh, No Bones About It, Ancient DNA from Siberia Hints at Previously Unknown Human Relative. Okay, and then from the Times Online in the United Kingdom, another article that uh, was entitled Fingerbone Points to a New Type. Now listen to this, a new type of human who fell off the family tree 30,000 years ago. Well, if he fell off the tree 30,000 years ago, he's not new. At least I don't think so. And how do they know it's 30,000 years? And here's the introductory sentence to that particular article. It says, A new species of ancient human that lived side by side with Homo sapiens and Neanderthals as recently as 30,000 years ago has been discovered rewriting the history of humanity's spread around the world. I said, that is quite a bold statement to make in a whole number of ways. But... Let me go on. We've already talked about a lot of this in the last 11 weeks, so don't want to bore you with it anymore. But let me share with you some other Yahoo trending titles, at least to explain why this has nothing to do with my family. Okay? And here's the first one. It'll you know, tell you right off. Homo floresiensis, the hobbit. Well, do I look like a hobbit? No. So the hobbit, a dwarf form of Homo erectus. Well, this is what it's all about. This Homo floresiensis is considered to be, you know, they call it the hobbit because it's only, it was only the, uh, the skeleton was about three feet, six inches long. A dwarf form of Homo erectus. Now, I believe that dwarfism is still something that people have to deal with uh, now and, and has been for many, many years, so I don't see where that's a new thing. You, you understand? Okay. And then uh, we go on. There's another article, Homo floresiensis. Now they begin to define it. Mana flores. That's what floresiensis means. Uh, is a species in the genus Homo. Oh, okay. Homo, of course, is the Latin word for man. And then Homo floresiensis, florist man, nicknamed hobbits, are a possible species of Extinct human uh, discovered in 2003 on the island of Flores in Indonesia. So now we know where it comes, uh, where it gets its name. Well, let me just say that after reading some of these articles, 
I can say that the research that is being done, at least since 2003, when this particular uh, 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 species was discovered, as it were, uh, is somewhat interesting, uh, to say the least, but typical, to say the most. Typical of what? Typical of this, uh, these evolutionary scientists who, who talk a lot about DNA anomalies. I was reading about DNA anomalies uh, this week and realized that we have DNA anomalies even among humans. Uh, so why is that any different to say that there are DNA anomalies once they find bones that they consider to be 30,000 years and say, well, this is what makes it dis distinct from man. How can it be? Well, anyway, DNA anomalies, they say, uh, uh, speculative dating, of course, again, saying, well, this person uh, was found that was probably living around 30,000 years ago. But another scientist would say, no, it was 50,000 years ago. And so it just speculation, speculation abounds in, in this particular work. Building species from fragments. Do you know that what they found when it talks about a finger bone was actually a partial finger bone? Uh, and, and not a whole finger. So I thought that it was cute that they said the finger bone points to a new species. But uh, in fact, we've seen how they've found a bone, as they did when they found the tooth of a pig and then called it uh, Nebraska man. And, uh, and that uh, certainly didn't fly. So I share all of this, once again, to contrast man's search for an origin with God's clear description found in our text today in verse 7, which says very clearly, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You see, our text today represents the section of the Genesis account that records the early history of man. It covers the very beginning of man upon the earth, the beginning of mankind and of the godly seed that is the true follower of God. And from this point on, the content uh, focuses upon man. All of chapter 1, of course, focused upon God. But now in chapter 2, the focus begins to turn toward the man that God created. So we see how man got his start on earth in Genesis chapter 2, beginning here in verse 4, going on through verse 25. We will later see how man began to uh, sin against God and to die in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And then uh, how God went about saving man from sin and death in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24. Now, it needs to be mentioned that some Old Testament scholars have claimed that this section of Genesis... Uh, chapter 2 is, is a second account of creation written by a different author whose message conflicts with what's found in Genesis chapter 1. Well, that's not widely promoted today. That was actually a very liberal view from liberal theologians of about 100, 150 years ago, challenging everything that the Bible had, had to say. And so they began to think that the book of Genesis was actually written by about four different authors, as it were. But that's not uh, being really promoted today, and here's why. Mainly because after proper examination of these verses, Moses tells the same cre uh, creation account, but he gives added details that are necessary for us to understand events that will happen later. So I want you to consider it this way. Genesis chapter 1 
shows us creation with a, uh, through a wide-angle lens. We were just seeing about the eye, and uh, they were showing cameras, cameras with big lenses and all. Uh, and, and so Genesis chapter 1 is showing us everything on a, with a wide-angle lens, seeing a, a very broad scope of creation. While Genesis 2 uses a zoom lens to help us look at the details of creation, in particular the details of creation as it applies to man. So in fact there is a good example in the New Testament to authenticate and to confirm that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 tell the same creation account. When the Pharisees asked the Lord Jesus about divorce, he replied by quoting from the early chapters of Genesis, in particular chapters 1 and 2. In Matthew chapter 19, and you want to see this, Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. So turn there in your Bibles. I don't see anybody turning there. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered the Pharisees, and He said to them, Have ye not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's actually coming from chapter 1. And said... For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall or they two shall be one flesh. That's from chapter 2. So since the first quotation came from Genesis 1 and the other came from Genesis chapter 2, by the way chapter 1 is verse 27, chapter 2 is verse 24 respectively. It seems then that Jesus regarded the two chapters as belonging to one harmonious account. So I think that that's a very important understanding of, 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 the, uh, of the fact that we're not looking at two different Genesis accounts. Uh, and at the center of this zoomed view of this account of creation of man is, in fact, about man. Notice, if you will, verse 4. Now getting back to Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now we would say, well, where does it mention man here? Well, we have to focus on the word generations. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. The word in the Hebrew is the word toledot. Toledot which is translated as generations in our text. And it's key to understanding the whole of the book of Genesis. We can't fully understand Genesis unless we understand what this word means. The verse itself seems simple and even unimportant. But it, it, but it not only summarizes the preceding account of creation in verse 1, but actually sets the stage for the grander accounting of the purpose of creation and the purpose of man. So this is the account then of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, uh, this is a brief review then of chapter 1. The generations, the story, the history, and or the account. But the stress is that they were created. The stress is that they were created. The heavens and the earth did not just happen by chance. They did not happen by some random 
happening by something, some force or some matter, some gas or some energy appearing out of nothing. That is, unless it was God who many, many weeks ago we called the first cause. Because only God can create out of nothing. He spoke everything into existence. So the Lord God Himself created the universe, both the earth and the heavens. And in this declaration, there is an astonishing truth. And by the way, you'll notice uh, the first statement was that He created the heavens and the earth, and that the earth and the heavens were created. Why did He change the, uh, uh, the words? Because now the focus is going to be on the earth, because that is where man has been placed. So this is the declaration that is within it that, that bears a, an astonishing truth. And the astonishing truth is that God truly exists. That's the astonishing truth. God truly exists. Man's denial and rejection of the truth cannot do away with God. God is. And that is a statement that actually is not just something that we need to believe. It is a statement that is that is ingrained in the name of God. When Moses, being out in the wilderness, caring for uh, Jethro, his father-in-law's sheep, and he began to notice that, that there was a, a, a burning bush up in the hills, and, and he went to examine this particular burning bush, and out of the burning bush, of course, just to shorten the story itself, came the voice of God. The bush itself was not being consumed. So out of this bush came the voice of God. There was the conversation between God and Moses concerning God sending Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people from Pharaoh. And Moses would say to God or would ask God, Well, when I go, what name shall I give them of the God that is sending me? And God said to him, I am that I am. I am that I am. I am ascending you. That is God's name. We'll talk about His name in just a moment because it, it applies to our study here in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. I am. God is. You see, it'd be very easy also to, to just, you know, it's, it's not good grammar, but nonetheless, it's like God is saying, I is. I is. I have been, I always am, and always will be. In other words, I am. Eternal. That's the idea. God is eternal. It's built into His name. And so God is. God exists. And He alone created both the heavens and the earth. Many, many years later, of course, after uh, the children of Israel had been scattered in, in, in uh, uh, captivity with uh, uh, the Babylonians, that uh, they began to return to, to Israel and to Ju uh, Jerusalem in particular. And during the time of Nehemiah, the, uh, the, the temple had already been uh, rebuilt, except there was, no, there was no wall around the city of Jerusalem. When Nehemiah went, of course, Nehemiah's job was to get the people together to build the walls. In 52 uh, days, they built the walls of Jerusalem. When they finally got the people together to worship God, they were praying to God in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And I, and I say this because of the, the importance of seeing 
this idea of God being alone in the one, as, as the one who created the heavens and the earth. It was ingrained in their prayers. Then the Levites, Je- uh, Yeshua and Kadmiel, Bani, Hash- Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, a bunch of other names, uh, they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be the glory, thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now look at verse 6. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all the things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. For the Jewish people, their God was to be honored and glorified because he alone was the creator. Psalm 14, though, tells us something different. Not that the psalm tells us different, it tells us of people who see things different. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. The same is seen in Psalm 53, verses 1-3. through The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity, there is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did see God. Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, when you consider the fact that uh, after the fall of man, everyone born into this world was born into sin, then we have to understand that there is none that, done, there is none that has done good No, not one, in comparison to the God who has only done good. When in six days he created the heavens and the earth, and every day was good, and when it was all summed up on the seventh day, he said it was very good. It also reminds us that God comes and seeks us more than we seek him. Psalm 83, verses 17 and 18 says, Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, or Yahweh, art the Most High over all the earth. That's the name of God. And this particular passage leads us to the next significant aspect of verse 4. That is, that we now see a new name applied to the God of creation. Notice verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. A new name attached to God. Before we only had God and it was the word Elohim. But God's name is not so much changed as it's enlarged. The name of the Lord God in Hebrew is uh, by choice unpronounceable by the Jews. By choice unpronounceable. As a matter of fact, it goes back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And so, it's a name that they would never pronounce. Partially, and and really, uh, a great part of it is because they, they don't know how to write the name of God. So that's another issue here. But uh, the characters that uh, we see that are used for the name of God, we would, we would look at them as YHWH. 
Now that's where we get the word Yahweh. Uh, when you translate that into the uh, uh, Latin form or whatever, that uh, the J comes into effect. Uh, so it's Jehovah. But uh, these are just attempts by us to try to pronounce or to get to know what the name is. So it can be transliterated either as Jehovah Elohim or Yahweh Elohim, the latter being a bit more accurate than the former. As a matter of fact, today the Jews use another name for the name of God. It is a name for Lord in the Hebrew, and that's the word Adonai. Adonai. And, and that's important because they, they, they do want to say something to God in prayer, and Adonai is used in prayer. As a matter of fact, we see it when, uh, when the Shema uh, Hebrews, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 uh, is, is stated. And we state that, of course, every time that uh, we do a dedication of a baby here at the church. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. In the Hebrew, it is Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echod. Adonai, so the name Adonai is the one used, but it's, it's safe for them because it is the word that is used for Lord. Capital L, little O-R-D. But when you read in your scriptures, if you have good translations, you'll see L-O-R-D capitalized. That represents Y-H-W-H, which would be the name of God. So that's a little Hebrew lesson here. And simply, this is the personal name of God. Many Jews today like to use the term Hashem. Hashem. Because that means the name. It's a very respectful term to call God Hashem because He is the name. It is a personal name of God. That's the whole point here. And I don't want to drag this through the mud here. But, but listen, the, what does it mean? The personal name of God. It is the revealing and the redemptive name of God. So now, God is ready. God is ready to reveal Himself to man. God is ready to establish a personal relationship with man. And God is ready to redeem man from his fall into sin and death. Which, by the way, God knew was going to happen. Why do we know this? Because if he didn't know this, he wouldn't be God. God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. So this passage here in verse 4 is laying the foundation for what is to follow. That the early history of man, it is the early history of man upon earth. This is what's going to follow. So this is the foundation. And so it is time for God to be revealed as the Lord, the Lord God of the universe. The universe was created by a personal God, a God who created the world so that he might establish a personal relationship with his creation, in particular with man. Simply stated, the Lord God is the name that describes what God is about to do upon earth. Establish that personal relationship with man and redeem man from his terrible plunge into sin and death. So listen, how much more personal can God be? I mean, that's pretty personal. I've actually talked to Christians that, uh, you know, they have this particular view that, you know, they, they don't like to hear evangelicals talk about uh, leading someone to Christ uh, as their personal Lord and Savior. Well, why do you have to use the word personal? Because He is a personal God. He wants to have fellowship with us individually. Why not use the word personal? The good thing about it is that He's my personal Lord, He's your personal Lord, and He is big enough to be everybody's personal Lord. 
if we'll just make Him our personal Lord and Savior by surrendering our lives to Him and confessing Him as our Lord and believing that He rose again from the dead. Because the Bible says when we do that, then we know we're saved. So how much more personal can God be? Well, jump over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Only a personal God can actually go forth and look for someone and say, Where are you? And it's not that God didn't know where he was. Did you notice God went exactly where he was and says, Where are you? It's not like he's going around saying, Where are you? I can't find you. See, God knew. We're making God too small. God's a big God. Deuteronomy 4 verse 29 says, But if from thou... But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. Well, you know, you only seek someone if it's a personal seeking. Thou shalt find him if thou shalt seek, uh, seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. What about Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18? Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. You know, you only reason with somebody that's personal. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's the best way of reasoning, when you reason with God. It's just coming to grips with what He has for us and surrendering, submitting to that. Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens. You notice the term Lord has been underlined in cap for you. God Himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. So, the next portion of our text describes the global conditions before man's creation in terms that stress God's gracious preparation of the world for him. So in verses 5 and 6 of our text, going back to Genesis chapter 2 now, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now I want you to note that the heavens and the earth were created before the field plants and the shrubs, before the rain, and before man. So the brief picture of what we might call prehistoric earth that is painted by these verses is this. The earth was encircled with this heavy mist of dense fog and thick clouds. That is what watered the earth. And apparently if there had been any light and heat from the sun, because the sun actually didn't come till later on the fourth day, but apparently the light and the heat from the sun and other heavenly bodies could not reach the earth at this time because of that particular mist. But uh, consider the wisdom of all of this. This is the point that I want to make here. Consider the wisdom of all of this. As the earth was formed in six 24-hour day stages, as we have studied extensively in the first chapter, nothing was created outside of its time to be made. Nothing was created outside of its time to be made. Think about it. On the first day, what was created? Of course, even though he spoke everything into existence, on the first day he did create one thing. Light be, light was. So there was light. Now remember the significance about this to our, own, to our own life biologically. First there is light. And then what comes? On the second day, breathable atmosphere. Because God separates the waters from the earth and, the, and, 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 and then separates it to the heavens. And in between this particular canopy of, of, of water, moisture, 
is the breathable atmosphere that we can now breathe ourselves. So, the third day comes, uh, and there is on that third day not only the dividing of the water and the land, now land appears. Why? Because on land is where God is going to do what? Bring forth life. And the vegetation that was on, on, on the uh, land itself. And it was lush vegetation. He didn't plant seeds on the third day. He made plants and fruitful trees. So everything is in its place. And created, never created, I should say, outside of its time. Light, breathable atmosphere, water and land, and then came the vegetation. And it always brings to mind this one verse of scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 that says he has made everything beautiful in his time. He has made everything beautiful in his time. It's not our time, it's his time. And when he created the heavens and the earth in those six days, it was good. And he, on the seventh day, he looked at it and said, it's very good. So God always does things just in time. Did you know that when you look at the life of Jesus through the Gospels, Jesus was never late anywhere. And he was never running to get there. Now some people would say that in the Gospel of John, he was late to Lazarus. Uh, uh, you know when, when they requested that he come because Lazarus was sick he actually waited to arrive there when Lazarus was dead why? because it was now time to reveal that he was the resurrection and the life Jesus never ran anywhere he was always on time and he didn't even have a Rolex he was always on time so again, it must be mentioned that this was in preparation for man's creation. Let's, let's go to verse 7 now. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. We're already quite aware that God and God alone formed man. Man was not formed by impersonal forces nor did he just appear out of nothing. Neither did man evolve from other creatures that had come out of nothing. We are told that the Lord God formed man. The word for formed is the word in the Hebrew, yatsar. He formed yatsar, man, out of the dust of the ground. The word yatsar means to mold, to shape, to form, to fashion, to devise. gives us a picture. It gives us a picture of a potter who has an image in his mind that he wants to create. Those of you who may remember last year when Pam and, and, uh, and Mike Roselle were here doing the, uh, uh, the pottery work and uh, the lesson that uh, he's the potter, we're the clay. What was going on was Yatsar was the forming. What we have to understand about that word is, is, is very significant here. Because God is molding, God is shaping, God is forming man with tender loving care. 
If you have been an artist or you work, uh, let's say, uh, hobbies or crafts, whatever, a lot of times when you first start out, it's, it's trial and error. It's, it's doing your best. To, and then you look at it and you don't like it. And you crush it and start all over again. Or you're painting and you don't like it. You rip the page out and do it. Do it. You know, it it's just trial and error. With God, it's not that way. God had already devised. That's part of Yetzar. Devised. God had already seen what He was going to create. And in his forming and his shaping and his molding, he did so with that tender, loving care. Because the word Yetzar describes for us the work of an artist. God is the grand artist. He's the master artist. He's the master potter. He's the master sculptor. He's the master creator. There is none like him. The word Yetzar is used in the book of Job and uh, in the midst of Job's very troubling times. But he was wondering why he was going through the struggles that he was going through. And yet he mentions how God formed him. Job 10 verses 8 and 9 says, Thine hands have made me and fashioned me. That's the word Yetzar there. Uh, fashioned me together round about, yet thou dost destroy me. Remember, I beseech thee that thou hast made me as the clay, and wilt thou bring me into dust again? This was in the midst of his great struggle and trial. And yet David would use the word also from, you know, in, in a more proper way, in the sense that in Psalm 139, Verses 14 through 17, David says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and, thy, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, Yatsar, when as yet there was none of them. You see, he devised. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them. Even in Jeremiah, at the onset of his ministry, in Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee, before I yatsar, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. You know, the fact that man is the product of God's mind and wisdom and intelligence and thought and heart should give this, uh, it gives great dignity and great honor to man. Remember that if we believe that God created as he did, as it states in the book of Genesis, if we believe that God created that way, then man has significance because man is created in the image of God. The evolutionist cannot, come, cannot say honestly that man truly has any significance. We've already read what Richard Dawkins has said. There really is no significance. He's an atheist. He's an evolutionist. He says there is no significance to man. Man has no meaning in this life. Carl Sagan, we, we talked about him a couple of weeks, stating the same kind of thing. No meaning to life. 
And yet one word, God formed us with love and with care because we have meaning. We have purpose. We're not animals. We may act like it sometimes, but we're not animals. We shouldn't act like it. Can you even for a moment consider that you are the creation of God's very own heart, His very own mind and power? God's creation of man was very, very special. It was a matter that had the personal attention and care of God. The Lord God was personally involved in the creation of man, involved in a far different way than when He created the rest of the world. Because it is with man that He has that personal relationship. He was creating in man the creature who was to be the summit of His creation upon the earth. The creature who was to have the ability to freely choose to worship and to serve God. Did we hear of a, of a scientist, an evolutionary scientist, that said, man doesn't even have free will. Almost to the sense that we're some kind of automaton. We're like animals, you see. No. God gave us a free will if we're created in the image of God. So, freely choose. And God created man to oversee the universe for God throughout all of eternity. So in a nutshell, God created man to know Him, to worship Him, and to serve Him. The next verses that I'm going to read to you, and we're going to close with these, are, are, are verses of Scripture that remind us that we are made to worship Him, to, well, to know Him, to worship Him, and to serve Him. Psalm 100, verse 3. Now keep your finger there, because I'm going to come back and read the whole psalm in just a moment. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He made us and not we ourselves. We're not self-made men. We're not self-made people. God made us. Isaiah 43, verses 7 through 10. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Remember, God is Psalm 95, verse 6, teaches us of our need to worship God. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Psalm 96, verse 9, O worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. That is one reason why we're gathering tonight at uh, 6 o'clock, to worship the Lord, to honor the Lord beyond what we've done even today. Getting back to Psalm 105, and we'll close with this. The whole psalm says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. There is our command to serve Him. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him, and bless His name. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth 
to all generations. When we have purpose, when we have meaning and significance, all we can do is look up and give thanks to the one who gave us that meaning, gave us that significance, gave us a mind to think, gave us a voice to express, gave us a heart to feel and to understand the love of God. Well, I'm not really done with verse 7 yet. It's the way it worked out. But I do want to uh, say that we're going to pick up here next time. Now, next time is Resurrection Sunday. That's next week. And uh, we're going to deal with the issue of being formed from the dust of the ground and God breathing into man's nostrils the breath of life. And... uh, Tie that into the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So you don't want to miss it. You want to be here. Because we're going to rejoice and give thanks to God that Jesus Christ came to this earth that he created. He took upon himself flesh. He lived. He preached. He taught. He healed. He raised the dead and then he went to die. But three days later he rose again and ascended into heaven and we now wait for his return. Because we wait, let's live our lives for the glory of Christ. Shall we pray?